hello everybody and welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters. And it's Martin Keenan here and I'm joined by Brett Mitchell in Australia. Hello Brett. Good day Martin. Good to hear from you again. Yeah. We all normally say see because we can see each other but yes. it doesn't really quite work. I stumbled when I said hear from you again. There was a little, yeah, little like pause. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually we look better on podcasts. So. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, what we're going to talk about this week is infection prevention team staffing because i was my interest in this was piqued by a recent paper by clifford and colleagues published in infection control and hospital epidemiology and this is a, it's a single unit study and i've not seen this piece of work this sort of thing done before where they've actually looked at their infection prevention team staffing levels and rates of healthcare associated infection and they call it a nine-year ambidextral observation so they've looked before and after they actually started to think this was something they ought to look at and you know I, I do wonder why we don't actually look at this a little bit more you know how effective are we in terms of reducing healthcare associated infection and is it related to infection prevention and control teams and now they found it actually did reduce infections in a number of the different groups of uh, infections they were actually collecting data on and actually, when I started to read the paper, I realised that one of the systematic reviews performed on this was actually performed by Professor Brett Mitchell. <laughs> so, Brett, where did you get interested in this? Because it was a few years ago you published your work on this. Yeah. So I, the first thing I got interested in was IPC staffing levels. And uh, we did a survey around 2014 of hundred and 50-odd hospitals, I think it was, in Australia. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the IPC staffing levels. And the reason I got interested in it was just because I was actually just left a government job at the time. And, you know, there was so much discussion about what's a safe level of IPC, FTE, full-time equivalents, in in hospitals. And what what are we going to recommend? That's actually a really good point because people always say, how many do we need? Need, yeah. It's just a number. And it's I'm a number. Not sure it's not about works. the number yeah. necessarily. So, well, you know, a number is clearly important. So that sort of, yeah, got me interested. So we did this survey and, and we actually did a whole big program of work. We looked at um, staffing levels per 100 beds. We looked at the things like credentialing, so similar uh, system to the sort of certification system in America mm-hmm. of infection preventionists there. And we tried to look at some outcomes. We didn't link them to outcomes like, like Clifford did. We, that wasn't the primary aim. We really just wanted to describe staffing levels, what that looked like, what IPCs were saying they did, and also what were some of the challenges and priorities for them. Um, Although, interestingly, you did pick up on some slight differences in outcomes, didn't you, in that yeah. private hospitals with lower ratios of infection prevention team actually had higher rates of C. diff, which I don't think you were expecting. So there, no. there was an element of that in there, wasn't there? There was a little element of that, and we tried not to draw too much from that because it wasn't the aim of uh, aim of the study per se. No. And so we were really careful about that, but we did find some really other interesting things which was slightly different to Clifford and, and, and what Pat Stone's found uh, in her work as well. But, you know, probably the, the other interesting finding was that we found that credentialed infection control professionals did seek out research much more to inform their evidence-based practice. They were associated with mm-hmm. teams with higher levels of, of infection uh, control staff. They also performed better in things like accreditation 
which is an external validation of how your infection control program is going, conducted in every couple of years generally in Australian hospitals. And so I guess it, it and it, they were, I wouldn't say surprising results, but they were pretty solid results in that, in that shape or form. So it really just went to show where you've got an eye infection control uh, person leading uh, a team or, part, or a senior member of a team who has got that credentialing, so a recognition of expertise and experience, that they do have some interesting differences in terms of staffing levels and uh, priorities and, and engagement with research. I mean, does that indicate a degree of commitment on behalf of either the person themselves to go and get credentialed or the organisation who are valuing infection prevention and therefore supporting that person to get credential and therefore they are more likely to be looking at literature? Because I'm, rem- mm. I'm reminded of a paper by Sanjay Saint where they looked at followership mm. and they found that organisations in which the infection prevention team described themselves as exemplary followers were actually much more likely to be using the most recent research-based interventions in their organisations, even yeah. though actually most people describe themselves as a good follower. You know, the more engaged they seem to be, the more up to date they seem to be as well. So I suppose that would that would sort of fit with that one, really. It could well do. Um, what we found interestingly about um, whether the organisation values the stuff is that actually a lot of the IPCs said that they felt a real lack of engagement around infection control by senior leaders within their organisation. So mm-hmm. that was one major problem. And at the time I was also working in, or actually just finished working in a government role. And at the, prior to that, we were trying to put through some strategies uh, at the, cut across a number of different hospitals. And one of them was talking about, do we want people to be credentialed uh, as a requirement to lead infection control teams? Or should we put that in job descriptions for particularly coordinators or managers or senior people in, in infection control? We didn't go down that route for a number of reasons, and I'm, I'm not disputing that, but there was really no interest in organisations to support IPCs to do that. It was really off their own back that they were going and getting that certification or credentialing status. So I, th- mm. I think really what this does is expose a much bigger problem we have about career pathways in infection prevention and control. People fall into the role, and there isn't necessarily, for the vast majority of people, uh, a career pathway where you start somewhere defined and you build up Mm. you know often it's we've got extra staffing they can go on the infection control team or you know the infection control team really short we'll just pull someone off someone else can help you for three months so i think that's probably probably for me highlights the the criticality of having some career development Mm -hmm. practice standards whatever you want to call it around um, uh, infection control professionals more broadly i mean one thing they showed in this paper from Clifford and colleagues so they looked at the variation in the staffing now in the states it's recommended 0.7 to 1 whole time equivalent per 100 overnight bed days yeah and so that's about one per 150 beds isn't it yeah yeah something like that so now they should have had according to the those data um seven to eight whole time equivalents full uh, full time equivalents and but the staffing levels range from less than two occasionally to eight and in fact when it went to two they weren't actually infection prevention professionals at all they were people acting into the role for a period of time so clearly there were mm. some issues there where they just haven't attracted the staff or they've all left or who knows and they actually had no hospital epidemiologist either uh, and there th- things like their courty rates went up 
and you know they they had significant issues with the healthcare associated infection and maybe we don't sell that aspect well enough and actually hmm. we should be able to look back and look at some of these data retrospectively even in and i know it's nobody likes retrospective data but to actually demonstrate while we were having low numbers these things were happening they had all their outbreaks when they had low numbers of ipt members yeah they, they had a candorous outbreak they had other outbreaks going on at that time as well so yeah you know we don't sell the benefit i don't think as well as we might do no no and look before we go into even even more detail about this study because it was really interesting I think they, they do point some limitations out. Maybe we'll just talk about those up front, you know, that, yeah. and you, you touch on them. Your casual relationships are very difficult to be inferred. Or even um, causal relationships. Or even causal relationships <laughs> can't be inferred, inferred from quasi-experimental study designs, which is, is what this is. But you can never do an RCT anyway. Uh, no. Well, I can't, can't imagine how you'd manage an RCT um, for this type of thing. So, yes, it's got that big caveat uh, yeah. hard to control for those confounders associated with that but what else have we got um, the other limitation which the authors point out is that you know this is a single institution mm-hmm. but I, I what I found fascinating is that yes it might be a single institution but they do have some great longitudinal data on 10 different HIAs yeah. over that period of time I, I would love to know how they do it uh, how they managed to do, to do county surveillance amongst many other things that period of time um, Especially when you're down to just two whole time equivalents yeah. instead of the seven or eight you should have, you know, it makes you wonder what they're not doing at that yeah. point. Yeah. Well, actually, there's a trick there, Martin, isn't it? So mm. one of the one of the things that they found uh, was in relation to SSIs, and I think they, their SSI rates. Are, uh, sorry, they said having lower SSIs where there's more yeah. IPC staff is is uh, is, biologi- is biologically plausible because. Uh, IPCs are going to meet. They're going to talk to the to colleagues. They've got more of them around. They can review much more cases in in detail, and so you're probably going to rule out a few SSIs through that detailed review as well. Where superficially, if you're doing a cursory look, you might just go, "Yep, that's an SSI." Yeah. Um, and, and conversely, SSI for some surveillance elements, is very labour intensive, isn't it? Yeah. So. That's exactly right. So you need more people to do it and to do it well, at least. Anyway. Mm. And if you think about some of the other things that you touched on, Clabsies, C. difficile, CRE infections, where they were higher when there were lower rates of IPC levels, you know, again, that kind of makes sense because some of the interventions and some of the things you're going to put in place for those types of infections really acquire engagement of IPC staff with clinicians. Yeah. And a lot of that's going to happen in, in clinical areas and at the bedside, which you simply can't do if you haven't got the staff. Yeah, I mean, they said over that 10-year period, apart from a couple of things like ending contact precautions for MRSA and VRE and a four-month, you know, just a four-month quality reduction program, they were actually unable to complete any major initiatives or projects or, or campaigns because they were just presumably firefighting the rest of the time. Yeah. And that's never a great place to be. I mean, I, you'd, I'd, I struggle, I have to say, a little bit with a, you need this number of staff per those number of beds because... To me, that doesn't work for every organisation because you can no. have a, an organisation with a lot of beds, but actually a, a relatively low infection prevention demand, as in maybe they've not got huge numbers of critical care beds. They Maybe they're not doing large amounts of surgery. Mm. Whereas other hospitals, you know, you can go to a big teaching hospital here in the UK and they'll have eight or nine different intensive care units in it. And they'll be doing, you know, they're a tertiary referral centre where they're getting all the most complicated cases. Mm. 
and to me a an x number per y beds doesn't work to, to me i think we need to start looking at activity and almost go to our organizations and say well okay we need some infection control support here and we need to do this is what we would want to put in the program mm. and against each thing you would want to put in the program so say we want to do central line associated bloodstream infection surveillance because that's costly and extended lengths of stay and it's going to take one whole time equivalent person to do that for for our size of unit and if we want to do surgical site infection surveillance, that's going to take this. And if we want to do, you know, and apart from the surveillance, the education and the audit and the monitoring, mm. here's a costed plan of what we would need to do it. And then you say to your manager, what do you want us not to do? Yes, that's right. So they've actually got to choose what you're not going to do so that when a, an accrediting or regulatory organization comes in to monitor your hospital and they say why aren't you doing that well the answer is that the managers have chosen not to do this yeah I, look I, I agree with your point about uh, i don't think we can ever be definitive about a finite number but and when we did our piece of work early on we decided we, that was actually the goal to start with could we put out some kind of position uh, on on that soon we decided no that was just never going to happen um, for, for all those reasons you just described, the services are different, the requirements are very different, the models of care are different within different organisations, the types of patients that they see are very different. I mean, everyone says they've got the the busiest this or the you know the, the sickest <laughs> yeah. patients of that. But in actual yeah. fact, you know, if you're if you've got a a cancer hospital dedicated, it can be very different to perhaps a rehabilitation unit. It's not saying that that you need more or less, but what you do is be very different. Mm. So that that does require different resources. Um, I think though having a number is helpful because ultimately, if you're working in a hospital, you might be just two or three of you in a smaller sort of hospital, and you're banging your head up against resources all the time, and you. Mm. Your managers are going, oh, well, what's the normal? And, and you know, you're sitting at half of what the average or mean is in the country. At least you've got cause to say, look, this looks bad. If we were, if something was to go wrong here, uh, we've got half of half the staffing of what an average uh, facility has in the country. So I, I do think these types of descriptive data are very useful for that purpose, uh, where you might get managers or administrators who are being particularly difficult. Don't they then think, okay, we've got the number, we don't need to worry about the team now, and therefore they don't really value what you're doing? Well, that's the other thing. I'm nervous about just having a number because to some people, if you hit the number, then things must be fine. Oh, yeah. And actually you may not be able to do this, the clubs surveillance. You might want to do courty surveillance. I mean, nobody's doing HAP surveillance. No. Okay, no. And, and that's the biggest healthcare-associated infection, but it doesn't fit in anybody's programme. And actually, probably doing that, no, and, and and it'd be blooming expensive to, to do. Well, it would be expensive to do, maybe, but you might be able to put an intervention in that more than saves the money of that because of the yeah. number of bed days lost and the mortality. So, yeah, that's right. Know, it's, it's we don't do the difficult things because you you mentioned, mentioned courty surveillance. You know, mm. two biggest healthcare associated infections happen courty. Nobody has time to look at them. The other problem with the number is, is exactly what you say. So if you hit the number, say it's one and a half FTEs per 100 beds, what manager is going to then say, if you've got two, are they going to go, oh, that's nice. We're above the uh, above the, the recommended rate or the average. You, you, don't, you need less now. Thanks very much. And in fact, that's actually what came out. When we started doing this piece of work and we we're talking to, to senior people across the country, 
that was some of the things they highlighted. Actually, if we're well-staffed, this could be a problem for us mm. because it's an excuse to cut resources for people who don't understand what uh, is actually required. They've gone hard to build and justify the case for what they needed, as you've described earlier. Uh, and then you put out an arbitrary recommendation or figure. It's an easy place to go, well, yep, you know, you can have two less than in this hospital because you don't need them. It's according to that figure. And and the more that happens, the lower the average gets. And you become this self, self-fulfilling prophecy of just reducing the number down. Mm. And you actually drive could potentially drive down that number rather than have a number based on the need for the delivery of service that you're providing. problem is also if you have less number maybe you don't do certain bits of surveillance so therefore it looks like you haven't got as many infections therefore yeah. you don't need as many that's right <laughs> and uh and, yeah, and here, and here up, in, yeah. yeah look we've talked on this part here this is the value of things like external point prevalence studies for example and mm. surveillance systems that have strong validation processes attached to them so you can have a degree of confidence as to whether you're actually capturing what you're meant to capture or whether that rate is just because you don't know what you're looking for or you haven't got the time to look for it. Mm. Yeah. So I guess we're, we're leading to a place of probably a number's not a good idea, but I think it is from a descriptive point of view, I think it's still useful to know where's the ballpark across the country as a starting point for thinking about I'm way off, what have I forgotten? Mm. Or, uh, or I'm really over-egging it. Maybe I don't need six people to do my SSI surveillance. Maybe I just need one good person with some really strong infrastructure. Well, getting the six in, it might help. But actually, there are other ways of doing this as well. So I remember years ago, Mm. Judith Tanner put in a program in a hospital in the UK where they um, managed to build a small business case to get a team of people to do post-discharge surveillance, ringing people up at home uh, as a project. And they got some short-term funding for it. And the chief exec was so convinced by the data because they were actually being able to feed back to the surgeons their infection rates and their numbers came down that he actually funded the program full-time. Mm-hmm. And that's not a full-time IP staff member. So, But they did have a, people who, a team of people who were trained to call up people up and ask them about their infections. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, you know, is it about the number of people nominally in the IP team or are there other people, mm-hmm. you know, the trained full-time qualified infection control person or is there other people you start including in these numbers and then what does that do to the number you know you've got maybe the id physician or the hospital epidemiologist you maybe got in my team i had a healthcare assistant who was easily the most cost effective member of the team and you know did fantastic work out being out there on the wards she's a key member of the team i know and we're starting to see people like clinical scientists working in infection prevention yeah, as well right. so it's, it's broadening that. out the mm. team as well yeah we have talked yeah. about that there's so many you know, other and, expect- and there's operating department practitioners as infection prevention staff you know because actually in the theater that's where the surgical site infections are and the mm. normal ipc team aren't going to be sitting in the operating theater looking at the implementation of bundles and are people doing the right thing but actually mm. having an odp working in theater monitoring practice and feeding back the results of bundles in theatre, that could have an impact on SSI, probably more than walking around the wards, to be honest. That's right. Look, we focus our discussion very much on the, the IPC, and it, for me it's much, much broader than that, as you allude to. And, you know, in, uh, in the team that I recently set up as part of s- some stuff to do with COVID, um, we had a dedicated expertise in quality assurance uh, in that team. We had someone dedicated expertise in education so that they weren't actually 
an infection control person. They, the person leading the education team was someone who understood how to deliver education. Mm. The content expertise sat underneath that. Yeah. And so it's these types of models that are very hard to capture uh, in a number when we talk about what is an IPC. And then that, that bears probably a discussion for another day. What is What does an actual IPC do? I mean, that, that's, that's an discussion itself. But, you know, one of the big things we found in our, our work as well, the number one priority across the country, for us, certainly in Australia, was improved IT resources to make the team more efficient. Mm. And so, you know, again, if you're in a hospital, it's got a good electronic surveillance program that's validated. It does make your job potentially a lot easier. You can actually use the IPC manpower for something else, or you may need mm-hmm. less to do what three or four people were needed to do before. So, you know, the electronic surveillance, we'll have to get our other colleague, Phil Russo, to talk about electronic surveillance because that's very much up his alley. Yeah, I mean that that's the future I think. If you can get if, even if it's not perfect, what if it what if it does trigger you to look in more depth in certain areas through the capture of routine data on interlinked hospital systems, mm. then I think we potentially get more bang for your for our buck. Early early warning systems, all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff that, that yeah, yeah. you know, you only want to know when there starts to be a problem, for example. Yeah. You know, the other the other thing on this um on this topic was another paper from Dick Stein that came out in clinical microbiology and infection and um i think that was was probably three or four years ago now but they looked at stuffing for infectious disease clinical microbiology and infection control in hospitals in 2015 through a survey through escomid oh yeah this is Um, the european one isn't it yeah the european one yeah so 570 Mm. 67 hospitals Mm. in 61 countries and you know they came up with a median ID, clinical microbiologist, infection control physician, uh, infection control person per 100 beds was was 1.12. And so that gives you a ratio of, you know, one IPC per 80 odd beds. If you include the definitions of clinical microbiology, infectious disease, and I think that it might have looked at antimicrobial stewardship programs and resourcing in that too so mm-hmm. you know what you count in your numerator is going to be really important too yeah and that you know that's a great example of what is actually the ipc team look like it's not just infection prevention and control people it's uh much broader than that it could of course include id and clinical microbiology but as you mentioned clinical scientists epidemiologists mm. educationalists um all those types of interestingly that was that was physician staffing Mm. And it was written by the paper was a load of physicians, um, but they found that the infection control nurse staffing was actually quite a lot lower. I think it was about point seven oh, right, per hundred beds. Yeah, and mm. so that's that's a major difference. I think that this, that, you know, sorry, it's not point eight ratio personnel per mm. hundred hospital beds, which is lower than the ID and <laughs> and uh, yeah. infection control thing. So. You, you do wonder, hang on a minute, who's actually doing the interventions here? Because uh, with respect to my ID colleagues, I don't see them out on the wards doing the observations. They'll be involved in the antibiotic choices and the stewardship and, and that sort of aspect of it. But um, it's boots on the ground in many cases. And that's a diff- more difficult one, I think. Um, unfortunately, mm. they didn't look at rates of infections, did they, in that paper? I can't remember now. No, I don't believe they did. Um, no. I think uh, that was one of the aims of that of that paper. Mm. Yeah, so look, it's it's a a complex area, and um, you know we're never going to repeat something like Senec 
Um, and healthcare no. has changed so much uh, anyway since the 80s. I mean, so much healthcare has been delivered at home uh, and delivered in different settings and mm. it, it, with much shorter periods of time for post things like different types of surgery. So you made a good point in this paper about them having so much data. They got 10 years' worth of data in all of these different infections. Mm. Actually, there may be a number of other organisations who have that level of data in at least one or two of those. Mm. And could they go back and look at what their IP staffing was like around that time? Yeah. That would be interesting to see if that was mirrored in other organisations because, you know, absolutely take the limitation of this one. It's one organisation who's bothered to actually look at it and mm. hopefully going forward will help them argue in their own organisation that actually if there's more of us, this is a question. You know, this is a thing where there's, you know, if, if, you, if there's less of us, there's more infections. One of the few less is more arguments that yeah. isn't necessarily a good one. That's right. So, you know, could people... Because I don't think we're great at building a business case, I've got to be honest. You know, If no. you do this, that will probably happen, and then demonstrating that it did happen. So here's a return on investment. There's more of us. We're able to do more. Infections have come down. This is likely to be the sum of money we've saved. And then if you give us some more funding, we'll be able to do this, which means we could target another significant infection. That's right. And, and, you know, there are so many other things that crop up. We haven't touched on things like reconstruction and redesign of buildings, huh. which do yeah. take an enormous amount of resources for... Completely. Um, we, you know, we're learning so much more about the dynamics of infection transmissions, which requires mm. expertise from a whole range of different people who are not necessarily IPCs. Absolutely. And you may not need them in your team, but you want to have a contract where you can tap someone on the shoulder and go, you know, where's the best place here to put my... Uh, air purifier or you know yeah. what's the ventilation system doing in this part of the hospital right now um all those types of things and if you are, if you are rebuilding like you just said great point you know suddenly we're going to rebuild half a unit well to the person who's going to get involved in the design and everything you, they're not just going to give t- 10 minutes worth of advice no. you almost need somebody full-time to be working on that one so therefore eight for a period you're going to be one down and people just tend mm-hmm. to cope with that which then yeah. means certain things aren't going to happen. Instead of saying, for, for one year, we need somebody seconded in to see this building uh, project, or we need to buy somebody in for a year to do that building project. Otherwise, other yeah. things are going to suffer. And I'm not entirely sure that we're very good at doing that. Certainly not in the UK anyway, I don't think. No, I don't know that we're so much better in Australia. I, I, I have seen people put up business cases and some have been successful too. Mm-hmm to get that dedicated role or at least for a period of time because it, it, that alone is a massive piece of work be nice to see one of those published actually that's a nice practical would be really good wouldn't it that's a nice practical paper i think that might help other people if, you know if, yeah. if that sort of thing could be shared yes if you're listening out there and uh yeah you've got something in this space please did you, now this is the value of trying to publish these types of things even as a letter yeah. to the editor or a short report uh these things are really important to share yeah just gets people thinking a bit doesn't it anyway yeah. i've witted on about this a bit too much but it, it is something i've been asked over this how many infection control team do we need and my first question is what do you want to do mm. and sometimes people have gone, do. well we haven't we're low on numbers yeah, okay so what are you not doing that you want to do mm. and therefore that's the case you need to make mm. and then add up the number of bits that you want to do and that gives you how many you need now what you need isn't necessarily what the organization wants Mm. so then you've got to convince them that they in fact need these people Mm. so then you've got to show the value of 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 all of that and yeah to me that's the way forward rather than necessarily just having a number because 
often there's a temptation to go to the number or only just about achieve that number yeah and once you've hit that number oh we don't need to do anymore and 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 organizations don't actually always look at what the team are doing and are they getting what they want from the organization they get what they're told the the team are going to do in some occasions some occasions as well so and the quality, and I don't mean that term in a derogatory way, the quality yeah. of the, the IPC team. And, and you know, there are different levels of organisational support for professional development. Yeah. And uh, and people can and will perform better when they are supported either through peer networks, through uh, professional groups, uh, through having access to resources, through professional development. Um, you're going to bring out the best in people. And yeah. so if you're not investing in the people... You could also have six people who are not invested in and they're doing a crap job. Mm. Um, you might have three people who are heavily invested, who are efficient, who can prioritize, who understand what, what needs to go on, can interpret things faster, and off they go and deliver the same same service as six people. So I think there's also an element of needing to invest in human resources and development of uh, infection control professionals and preventionists more broadly. And as I say, I personally, I think that also includes what does the career pathway look like? Uh, and yeah. that is a profession we haven't sorted out. Uh, I mean, I, I think we should look at how infection prevention is funded. And certainly here in the UK, the hospital services are purchased by commissioners who buy a certain number of hip replacements or whatever on behalf of the community because we're in a national health service. And infection control is just bundled in with it. But the commissioners don't say, okay, we're going to buy 100 hip replacements. What's the quality of that like? You know, how many of them are successful? What's your infection rate like? They don't, to me, ever ever look at that. And if they mm. were to specifically invest in infection control, then as part of the service, then they might actually get a better outcome because people might, I'm not saying this very well at all, but basically hospital services are purchased, but nobody really mm. looks at quality of healthcare-associated infection data. In other words, are we getting uh, you know, a good service from this particular organisation? And if you're not getting a good service, why not? And it may well be that that organisation themselves are not looking at those outcomes for whatever so yeah, you know, I, I think I think we could we could relook at the way we fund infection control and the way we we the way we decide what we need to do yeah. to get the biggest bang for buck. I agree, and and just on that costing part, when we did this study that I referred to uh, a few years ago, we asked for the budgets as well of the infection control teams, and so we were able to extrapolate from that, and we estimated that across Australia. $76 million was being spent, Australian, on infection control nurse staffing. Mm. Now, that to me doesn't sound like much when we have 180-odd thousand, 160-odd thousand infections a year in public hospitals in Australia. Mm-hmm. A $76 million investment doesn't seem that uh, huge. And so I think the idea of re-looking really at what is what is the right proportion that we should be investing in prevention of whatever budget, whether that be the hospital budget, the, the system budget, would be a, a good starting point to start to ask those some of those questions that you just alluded to, mm. uh, you know, in terms of quality and are we getting bang for buck and what are we actually purchasing here? So, yeah. you know, if we, we need to start probably thinking about well, what does our budget look like for IPC as a totality of the health budget for the hospital mm. health system and are we comfortable with that? I know is that is that a worthwhile investment relative to the other things mm. going on? We want more or want worse? 
I just know that industry wouldn't say, oh, yeah, okay, we need a particular role. Mm. Therefore, we need three of them. They don't start with a number. That's right. <laughs> and then you build a program around the number. They start with a, what do we need these people to do? What's essential? What's desirable? You know, what extra would we get if we fund more than we're currently funding? And then mm. they would either fund or defund. Mm. And if you just have a, you've got to hit this minimum number, then that sort of level of thought doesn't go into it. Mm. And you, it's more yeah. difficult to make a case that you need people who are going to do the extra bits that actually may make quite a difference in terms of reducing healthcare associated infection. Because just popping back to Clifford, when the numbers were low, their infections were high. And when the numbers went up, in most of the infections they were monitoring, the infections dropped. So I have no doubt that that was likely to be cost effective for that organisation, especially in someone like the United States. I don't know if this is a hospital that weren't mm. getting paid if they had certain infections, but that would have an impact on the value for money they're getting from the infection control team, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Someone's paying ultimately for it. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so. Yeah, generally you and me, I think. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll wrap it up there. Yes, and fascinating good chatting, man. Yeah, and we'll do um, we'll do you know healthcare worker staffing sometime as well because actually that's another mm. big topic. So uh, we we thought yeah. we might include it in this, but actually that's quite uh, a quite big a different topic. One, so we'll yeah. pop back on that one sometime in the future. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for coming on board, Brett. And actually, I know this is a favourite topic of yours, so I knew you'd be okay with this. It was easy. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Okay, catch you again on the next episode of Infection Control Matters. Mm.